Chapters 1 and 2 of The Avenger. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Avenger by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter 1. A Mysterious Visitor. The man and the woman stood facing one another, although in the uncertain firelight which alone illuminated the room neither could see much save the outline of the other's form. The woman stood at the further end of the apartment by the side of the desk, his desk. The slim trembling fingers of one hand rested lightly upon it, the other was hanging by her side, nervously crumpling up the glove which she had only taken off a few minutes before. The man stood with his back to the door through which he had just entered. He was in evening dress, he carried an overcoat over his arm, and his hat was slightly on the back of his head. A cigarette was still burning between his lips, the key by means of which he had entered was swinging from his little finger. So far no words had passed between them. Both were apparently stupefied for the moment by the other's unexpected presence. It was the man who recovered his self-possession first. He threw his overcoat into a chair and touched the brass knobs behind the door. Instantly the room was flooded with the soft radiance of the electric lights. They could see one another now distinctly. The woman leaned a little forward, and there was amazement as well as fear flashing in her soft dark eyes. Her voice, when she spoke, sounded to herself unnatural. To him it came as a surprise, for the world of men and women was his study, and he recognized at once its quality. "'Who are you?' she exclaimed. "'What do you want?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'It seems to me,' he answered, "'that I might more fittingly assume the role of questioner. However, I have no objection to introduce myself. My name is Herbert Rayson. May I ask,' he continued with quiet sarcasm, "'to whom I am indebted for this unexpected visit?' She was silent for a moment, and as he watched her his surprise grew. Equivocable though her position was, he knew very well that this was no ordinary thief whom he had surprised in his rooms, engaged to all appearance, in rifling his desk. The fact that she was a beautiful woman was one which he scarcely took into account. There were other things more surprising which he could not ignore. Her evening dress of black net was faultlessly made, and he knew enough of such things to be well aware that it came from the hands of no ordinary dressmaker. A string of pearls, her only ornament, hung from her neck, and her black hat with its drooping feathers was the fellow of one which he had admired a few evenings ago at the Ritz in Paris. It flashed upon him that this was a woman of distinction, one who belonged naturally, if not in effect, to the world of which even he could not claim to be a habitant. What was she doing in his rooms? Of what interest to her were he and his few possessions? Herbert Rayson, she repeated, leaning a little towards him. If your name is Herbert Rayson, what are you doing in these rooms? They happen to be mine, he answered calmly. Yours? She picked up a small latch-key from the desk. This is number eleven, isn't it? she asked quickly. No, number eleven is the flat immediately overhead, he told her. She appeared unconvinced. But I opened the door with this key she declared. "'Mr. Barnes and I have similar locks,' he said. "'The fact remains that this is number nine, and number eleven is one story overhead.' She drew a long breath, presumably of relief, and moved a step forward. 
"'I am very sorry,' she declared. "'I have made a mistake. You must please accept my apologies.' He stood motionless in front of the door. He was pale, clean-shaven, and slim, and in his correct evening clothes he seemed a somewhat ordinary type of the well-bred young Englishman. But his eyes were grey, and his mouth straight and firm. She came to a standstill. Her eyes seemed to be questioning him. She scarcely understood his attitude. "'Kindly allow me to pass,' she said coldly. "'Presently,' he answered. Her veil was still raised, and the flash of her eyes would surely have made a weaker man quail. But Rayson never flinched. "'What do you mean by that?' she demanded. "'I have explained my presence in your room. It was an accident which I regret. Let me pass at once.' "'You have explained your presence here,' he answered, after a fashion. "'But you have not explained what your object may be in making use of that key to enter Mr. Barnes' flat. Are you proposing to subject his belongings to the same inspection as mine?' he asked, pointing to his disordered desk. "'My business with Mr. Barnes is no concern of yours,' she exclaimed haughtily. "'Under ordinary circumstances, no,' he admitted. "'But these are not ordinary circumstances.' forgive me if i speak plainly i found you engaged in searching my desk the presumption is that you wish to do the same thing to mr barnes and if i do sir she demanded what concern is it of yours how do you know that i have not permission to visit his rooms that he did not himself give me this key she held it out before him he glanced at it and back into her face the supposition he said does not commend itself to me why not he looked at the clock. "'You see,' he declared, "'that it is within a few minutes of midnight. To be frank with you, you do not seem to me the sort of person likely to visit a bachelor such as Mr. Barnes in a bachelor flat at this hour, without some serious object.' She kept silence for several moments. Her bosom was rising and falling quickly, and a brilliant spot of color was burning in her cheeks. Her head was thrown a little back, she was regarding him with an intentness which he found almost disconcerting. He had an uncomfortable sense that he was in the presence of a human being who, if it had lain in her power, would have killed him where he stood. Further, he was realizing that the woman whom at first glance he had pronounced beautiful was absolutely the first of her sex whom he had ever seen who satisfied completely the demands of a somewhat critical and highly cultivated taste. The silence between them seemed extended over a time crowded and rich with sensations. He found time to marvel at the delicate whiteness of her bosom, gleaming like polished ivory under the network of her black gown, to appreciate with a quick throb of delight the slim roundness of her perfect figure, the wonderful poise of her head, the soft richness of her braided hair. Every detail of feature and of toilette seemed to satisfy to the last degree each critical faculty of which he possessed. He felt a little shiver of apprehension when he recalled the cold brutality of the words which had just left his lips. Yet how could he deal with her differently? "'Is this man Morris Barnes your friend?' she asked, breaking a silence which had done more than anything else to unnerve him. "'No,' he answered. "'I scarcely know the man. I have never seen him except in the lift or on the stairs.' "'Then you have no excuse for keeping me here,' she declared. "'I may be his friend,' or I may be his enemy. At least I possess the key of his flat, presumably with his permission. My presence here I have explained. I can assure you that it is entirely accidental. You have no right to detain me for a moment. 
the clock on the mantelpiece struck midnight. A sudden passion surged in his veins, a passion which, although at the time he could not have classified it, was assuredly a passion of jealousy. He remembered the man Barnes, whom he hated. "'You shall not go to his rooms at this hour,' he exclaimed. "'You don't know the man. If you were seen—' She laughed mockingly. "'Let me pass,' she insisted. He hesitated. He saw very clearly that she was conquering. A moment before she had respected this man. After all, though, he was like the others. "'I will go with you and wait outside,' he said doggedly. "'Barnes, at this hour, is not always sober.' Her lips curled. "'Be wise,' she said, "'and let me go. I do not need your protection or—' She broke off suddenly. The interruption was certainly startling enough. From a table only a few feet off came the shrill tinkle of a telephone bell. Wrayson mechanically stepped backwards and took the receiver into his hand. "'Who is it?' he asked. The voice which answered him was faint but clear. It seemed to Wrayson to come from a long way off. "'Is that Mr. Wrayson's flat in Cavendish Mansions?' it asked. "'Yes,' Wrayson answered. "'Who are you?' "'I am a friend of Mr. Morris Barnes,' the voice answered. "'May I apologize for calling you up, but the matter is urgent. Can you tell me if Mr. Barnes is in?' "'I am not sure, but I believe he is never in before one or two o'clock,' Wrayson answered. "'Will you write down a message and leave it in his letter-box?' the voice asked anxiously. "'It is very important, or I would not trouble you.' "'Very well,' Wrayson answered. "'What is it?' tell him instantly he returns to leave his flat and go to the hotel francis a friend is waiting there for him the friend whom he has been expecting a lady wrayson remarked a little sarcastically no the voice answered a friend will you do this will you promise to do it very well wrayson said who are you and where are you ringing up from remember you have promised was the only reply all right tell me your name wrayson demanded no answer Wrayson turned the handle of the instrument viciously. "'Exchange,' he asked. "'Who was that talking to me just now?' "'Don't know,' was the prompt answer. "'We can't remember all the calls we get. Ring off, please.' Wrayson laid down the receiver and turned round with a sudden sense of apprehension. There was a feeling of emptiness in the room. He had not heard a sound, but he knew very well what had happened. The door was slightly open, and the room was empty she had taken advantage of his momentary absorption to slip away. He stepped outside and stood by the lift, listening. The landing was deserted, and there was no sound of anyone moving anywhere. The lift itself was on the ground floor. It had not ascended recently, or he must have heard it. He returned to his room and softly closed the door. Again the sense of emptiness oppressed him. A faint perfume around the place where she had stood came to him like a whiff of some delicious memory. He set his teeth, lit a cigarette, and sitting down at his desk, wrote a few lines to his neighbor, embodying the message which had been given him. With the note in his hand he ascended to the next floor. There was apparently no light in flat number eleven, but he rang the bell and listened. There was no answer, no sound of anyone moving within. For nearly ten minutes he waited, listening. He was strongly tempted to open the door with his own key and see for himself if she was there. Then he remembered that Barnes was a man whom he barely knew and cordially disliked, and that if he should return unexpectedly the situation would be a little difficult to explain. Reluctantly he descended to his own flat 
and mixing himself a whisky and soda, lit a pipe and sat down, determined to wait until he heard Barnes return. In less than a quarter of an hour he was asleep. End of chapter one. Chapter two. The Horror of the Handsome. Wrayson sat up with a sudden and violent start. His pipe had fallen onto the floor, leaving a long trail of grey ash upon his waistcoat and trousers. The electric lights were still burning, but of the fire nothing remained but a pile of ashes. As soon as he could be said to be conscious of anything, he was conscious of two things. One was that he was shivering with cold, the other that he was afraid. Wrayson was by no means a coward. He had come once or twice in his life in a close touch with dangerous happenings, and conducted himself with average pluck. He never attempted to conceal from himself, however, that these few minutes were minutes of breathless, unreasoning fear. His heart was stumping against his side, and the muscles at the back of his neck were almost numb as he slowly looked around the room. His eyes paused at the door. It was slightly open, to his nervous fancy it seemed to be shaking. His teeth chattered, he felt his forehead, and it was wet. He rose to his feet and listened. There was no sound anywhere, from above or below. He tried to remember what it was that had awakened him so suddenly. He could remember nothing except that awful start. Something must have disturbed him. He listened again. Still no sound. He drew a little breath, and, with his eyes glued upon the half-closed door, recollected that he himself had left it open that he might hear Barnes go upstairs. With a little laugh, still not altogether natural, he moved to the spirit decanter and drank off half a wine-glassful of neat whiskey. Nerves, he said softly to himself. This won't do. What an idiot I was to go to sleep there. He glanced at the clock. It was five minutes to three. Then he moved towards the door and stood for several moments with the handle in his hand. Gradually his confidence was returning. He listened attentively. There was not a sound to be heard in the entire building. He turned back into the room with a little sigh of relief. "'Time I turned in,' he muttered. "'Wonder if that's rain.' He lifted the blind and looked out. A few stars were shining still in a misty sky, but a bank of clouds was rolling up and rain was beginning to fall. The pavements were already wet and the lampposts obscured. He was about to turn away when a familiar but unexpected sound from the street immediately below attracted his notice. The window was open at the top, and he had distinctly heard the jingling of a hansom bell. He threw open the bottom sash and leaned out. A hansom was waiting at the entrance to the flats. Wrayson glanced once more instinctively towards the clock. Who on earth of his neighbors could be keeping a cab waiting outside at that hour in the morning? With the exception of Barnes and himself, they were most of them early people. Once more he looked out the window. The cabman was leaning forward in his seat, with his head resting upon his folded arms. He was either tired out or asleep. The attitude of the horse was one of extreme and weary dejection. Wrayson was on the point of closing the window when he became aware for the first time that the cab had an occupant. He could see the figure of a man leaning back in one corner. He could even distinguish a white-gloved hand resting upon the apron. The figure was not unlike the figure of Barnes, and Barnes, as he happened to remember, always wore white gloves in the evening. Barnes it probably was, waiting. For what? 
Wrayson closed the window a little impatiently and turned back into the room. "'Barnes and his friends can go to the devil,' he muttered. "'I am off to bed.' He took a couple of steps across the room and then stopped short. The fear was upon him again. He felt his heart almost stop beating, a cold shiver shook his whole frame. He was standing facing his half-open door, and outside on the stone steps he heard the soft, even footfall of slippered feet and the gentle rustling of a woman's gown. He was not conscious of any movement, but when she reached the landing he was standing there on the threshold, with a soft halo of light from behind shining onto his white, fiercely questioning face. She came towards him without speech, and her veil was lowered so that he could only imperfectly see her face but she walked as one newly recovered from illness, with trembling footsteps, and with one hand always upon the banisters. When she reached the corner she stopped and seemed about to collapse. She spoke to him, and her voice had lost all its quality. It sounded harsh and unreal. "'Why are you spying on me?' she asked. "'I am not spying,' he answered. "'I have been asleep and woke up suddenly.' "'Give me some brandy,' she begged. She stood upon the threshold and drank from the wine-glass which he had filled. When she gave it back to him he noticed that her fingers were steady. "'Will you come downstairs and let me out?' she asked. "'I have looked down and it is all dark on the ground floor. I am not sure I know the way.' He hesitated, but only for a moment. Side by side they walked down four flights of steps in unbroken silence. He asked no question. She attempted no explanation. Only when he opened the door and she saw the waiting hansom she very nearly collapsed. For a moment she clung to him. "'He is there, in the cab,' she moaned. "'Where can I hide?' "'Whoever it is,' Wrayson answered, and his eyes fixed upon the hansom. "'He is either drunk or asleep.' "'Or dead,' she whispered in his ear. "'Go and see.' Then, before Wrayson could recover from the shock of her words, she was gone flitting down the unlit side of the street with swift silent footsteps. His eyes followed her mechanically. Then, when she had turned the corner, he crossed the pavement towards the cab. Even now he could see little of the figure in the corner, for his silk hat was drawn down over his eyes. "'Is that you, Barnes?' he asked. There came not the slightest response. Then, for the first time, the hideous meaning of those farewell words of hers broke in upon his brain. Had she meant it? Had she known or guessed? He leaned forward and touched the white-gloved hand. He raised it and let it go. It fell like a dead, inert thing. He stepped back and confronted the cabman, who was rubbing his eyes. "'There's something wrong with your fare, cabby,' he said. The cabby raised the trap-door, looked down, and descended heavily onto the pavement. "'Well, I'm blowed,' he said. "'Here, wake up, governor.' There was no response. The cabby threw open the apron of the cab and gently shook the recumbent finger. "'I can't wait here all night for my fare,' he exclaimed. "'Wake up! God love us!' he broke off. He stepped hastily back onto the pavement and began tugging at one of his lamps. "'Pushes that back, sir,' he said. "'Let's have a look at him.' Wrayson stood upon the step of the cab and lifted the silk hat from the head of the recumbent figure. Then he sprang back quickly with a little exclamation of horror. The lamp was shining full now upon the man's face, livid and white, upon his staring but sightless eyes, upon something around his neck, a fragment of silken cord drawn so tightly that the flesh seemed to hang over and almost conceal it. 
throttle by god the cabman exclaimed i'm off to the police station he clambered up to his seat and without another word struck his horse with the whip the cab drove off and disappeared wrayson turned slowly round and closing the door of the flats mounted with leaden feet to the fourth story he entered his own rooms and walked without hesitation to the window which was still open the fresh air was almost a necessity for he felt himself being slowly stifled his knees were shaking a cold icy horror was numbing his heart and senses a feeling of nightmare was upon him as though he had risen unexpectedly from a bed of delirium there in front of him a little to the left was the broad empty street amongst whose shadows she had disappeared on one side was the park and there was obscurity indefinable mysterious on the other a long row of tall mansions a rain-soaked pavement and a curving line of gas lamps beyond the river marked with a glittering arc of yellow dots further away the glow of the sleeping city shelter enough there for any one even for her a soft damp breeze was blowing in his face from amongst the dripping trees of the park the birds were beginning to make their morning music already the blackness of night was passing away the clouds were lightening the stars were growing fainter wrayson leaned a little forward his eyes were fixed upon the exact spot where she had crossed the road and disappeared all the horror of the coming day and the days to come loomed out from the background of his thoughts End of chapter two recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com